So hello everyone and welcome to this ESIP online conversation about the trade and economic development in the Asia Pacific and what role that trade policy is playing for new economic integration emerging in this region. My name is Frederick Eriksson and I'm very pleased to welcome today Vangelis Vitalis, New Zealand's Deputy Secretary for Trade and Economic Affairs, who has been chairing APEC's senior officials meeting during New Zealand's host year for the regional forum in 2021. Vangelis, of course, is known to many people in the European trade community since he's been New Zealand's ambassador to the EU and the WTO. He's also had several other senior positions in trade policy, leading, for instance, New Zealand's team of negotiators in the FTA negotiation with the EU and being the concluding chief negotiator for the country in the CPTPP negotiations. Vangelis has also called himself a long-suffering but ever-hopeful supporter of the Wellington Phoenix Football Club. And preparing for this conversation, I actually watched the highlights of its last game against Newcastle Jets on Friday. Vangelis, it's a great pleasure and honor to have you with me today. But I'm afraid to say that the suffering will continue for yet another season. <laughs> that was a that was a very cruel way to start the conversation. I know, I um, know, Frederick. I'm, when, I'm taking you, the bad news from the start, so we, we yeah, can yeah, only very, do very the good, good things later. Good. <laughs> of course, when you said highlights, they, they were certainly not highlights from my perspective. It was a terrible game. Um, my only hope is that it's only the third, I think it's the third game of the season, so all is not yet lost, but it was a typically bad start. Um, no. for, those, for those who are dying, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to spoil the game for you, but we lost 4-0, so anyone who's wanting to watch that game... Please don't. Um, and it was not a fine example of uh, New Zealand football at its finest. But anyway, Frederick, really nice to uh, to have this opportunity to speak. And um, I, <laughs> I hope I don't spoil people's breakfast uh, this morning. You certainly won't, Vangelis. It's a really great pleasure to have you with me. I mean, it's been a, an extraordinarily busy year for you. So I'm grateful that you've uh, taken this time uh, short before Christmas to catch up with us. So I was I was hoping we could start this conversation by taking the pulse of APEC. New Zealand's host here is drawing to close and you've been sharing the senior officials meeting of APEC during this year. It's been a time of economic challenges as well as many new developments outside trade that must have affected trade policy, like for instance, uh, continued pandemic management, um, developments in security policy, and of course, many other uh, world events. Going into the host year, what were New Zealand's intentions and how far have you managed to move the agenda in this direction? Thanks, Frederick. I mean, may- maybe let-, let me start by, you know, I know European audiences sometimes struggle to understand APEC. So I thought I'd start with a couple of words about APEC itself. You know, it was an organized uh, institution established in 1989, 12 founding members. New Zealand, I'm proud to say, was one of the founding members. Today, it's 21 members. 2.9 billion population, 38% of the world's population. We collectively, just the 21 of us account for 47% of global trade. We account for 60% of global GDP. Another interesting statistic that I found this year is that we also, as, a, as the 21 of us, account, unfortunately, for 60% of global emissions, so of carbon emissions. So Uh, There are some big responsibilities that APEC members uh, have. APEC, of course, stands for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, and it doesn't have institution or organization at the end of it because it is a deliberately, relatively loose 
formation of the 21 of us. I think the other important point to remember is the 21 of us, this is not the G20, it's the 21 of us are actually all in the same region. So we are co-located, we are geographically contiguous, we have to get on, we have to find ways to get on. And um, the purpose of the organization is really about uh, economic integration across the region um, and finding ways to do that in a in a way that could sustain, you know, the rules-based uh, trading system. And also when, it, of course, it was established in 1989, we didn't have the World Trade Organization, had not yet uh, been formed. In fact, it, it did not even appear that the Uruguay round was going to, going to be successfully concluded. So, you know, at, at one stage, APEC helped galvanize, um, and certainly we, that would be the perspective from APEC members, we helped galvanize tension back onto, you know, the end of the Uruguay round, and then to try to establish the World Trade Organization. And interestingly, I think that support for the World Trade Organization has been a continual theme all the way through APEC uh, meetings, and certainly this year uh, was no exception under our hosting. Now, you asked what was, you know, what was the focus of our year? Uh, as you said, look, I mean, let me be open about it. It was a real career highlight and a privilege for me to chair APEC this year, the senior officials process, as you can imagine, a really important year, an important year for the institution, an important year for the region, um, and of course, for New Zealand, an absolutely critical year. We did not <laughs> we did not want to mess this one up. And I think one of the big decisions that New Zealand made very early on was to move to a fully digital year. So we made that decision several months even before we took over the chairing. And it was a controversial decision at the time, both domestically, but also across our region. But in hindsight, of course, it proved to be exactly the right decision, including because it meant we could plan for a, you know, a fully digital year with all that that entailed. We didn't have to scramble around at the last minute to stitch together Zoom meetings. We had built a platform that could host literally thousands of delegates who would be in a secure environment, would be able to participate. We were able to run breakout groups and so on. Um, so we were very pleased. We were, of course, very disappointed at one level because we were not able to bring APEC colleagues to New Zealand, you know, to have the presidents and the leaders of the, of the economies um, come to New Zealand, the ministers, but also the literally thousands of delegates. So that was, a, that was a significant blow. But nevertheless, we were still able to deliver a high-quality experience for colleagues working on the, on the platform, and then also in terms of the substance. Now, I want to talk about the substance in a moment because I want to contextualize what the year looked like. Certainly, and, and let me speak from my perspective as the, you know, in APEC parlance, the SOM chair, the senior official meeting chair. We picked up the year after three pretty tough years for APEC. So it's easy to forget that APEC was hosted by Papua New Guinea three years ago through no fault of Papua New Guinea as the chair it was not possible to reach a consensus that year. And to be blunt, uh, there was a geopolitical problem. The two major economies of our region unable to agree. And for the first time, APEC did not reach a consensus in the leader's statement. Uh, And a very significant break point in terms of our history. The following year, it was Chile's host year. And unfortunately, because of domestic political events, um, they had to cancel uh, the big event of our year, the leader's week. And so we also didn't have sort of that statement that then binds the membership and carries us over into the next year. The most recent host year was, of course, Malaysia, uh, and we owe Malaysia an enormous debt of gratitude. Malaysia had the challenge of starting off the year of COVID, uh, starting off with physical meetings, but then having to switch 
you know, partway to a third of the year the way through to a fully digital event. And that was a, that was a, a real shock to all of us. Uh, and the Malaysians, I think, really pulled that off very effectively. What they did that was so critically important for all of us was they delivered a document called the Putrajaya Vision. The Putrajaya Vision is the one-page document that has the high-level strategic vision of APEC for the next 20 years. So Malaysia managed to get us a consensus for the first time in three years, a leaders' consensus, and also this vision statement. At the same time, we picked up the year. COVID was really, you know, going through our economies. And I want to make the observation that in, in our year, on the day we took over the hosting, every day, 100,000 people in the APEC region were infected by COVID. So every day of our hosting, 100,000 or more people each day were infected by COVID. A million people did uh, in our part of the world as a consequence of COVID. So the human catastrophe that we were confronting was real. And, you know, it, it was a wrenching period. And to see colleagues, you know, um, really grappling with that challenge, I, I think was a really profound shock, I think, to all 21 of us as, as members. I think the second observation I'd make about the, the context for our year was unfortunately, you know, strong geopolitical rivalry that certainly wasn't dying down, a real risk of fragmentation. I mean, one, one should not forget the United States had withdrawn from TPP. Those of us who remained were able to pull it together. RCEP was concluded And so we had these two mega regionals, but we didn't have the United States was no longer in the hard rules of the region, uh, if you like. So that was another challenge. Unfortunately, too, we had rising protectionism. um, And that is one of the features of our year, unfortunately, and the previous year, where unfortunately, a lot of sort of what we call at this end of the world, creeping protectionism, sort of the more invidious type of protection, not necessarily a tariff, but a new certificate an export restriction get, that gets in, in place, gets put in place on, you know, to take a random example, PPE equipment that uh, w- was not distributed across borders. Th- those kinds of challenges, look, and those were challenges that we faced in our region as well. So it was a region that was also, you know, facing the human catastrophe of COVID, geopolitical tension, rising protectionism uh, of, of a real, you know, kind that was now spilling or bleeding over into other areas. And, you know, it, it was in that context that we took over the hosting and it was very clear to us that APEC needed to respond to this in substance and it needed to do something real. Warm words, you know, nice rhetoric, it, it was not going to do it this year. And so and, and we have a government that's very practical, uh, you know, like most New Zealanders, and really was determined that this year we were going to have to do something about this. So we essentially had two big priorities for the year and these are sort of the big strategic ones one was respond to COVID and respond to COVID in a real practical way and I want to explain what we what we did in our year and the second was to prepare our region for the recovery so how do we position our region and the institution that matters so much to us uh, for the recovery that, that we knew was coming and remember our region is one that's heavily dependent on tourism and services trade And both of those, of course, really collapsed uh, as a consequence of COVID. So our focus, our initial focus was response to COVID. We wanted an agility um, to be displayed by APEC. And what we did was we did our due diligence, as we say, Um, you know, we did some homework and we discovered that, you know, across the 21 of us, we have some embarrassing stories. We have um, tariffs in place on, on a range of products that you need 
to save lives in COVID. Some of our members have up to a 6% tariff on vaccines. Some of our members have tariffs of up to 20% on face masks. Some of them have tariffs of up to 18% on soap. So at the precise moment, we're saying to people, you need to wash your hands, you need to stay safe, you need to wear a mask. And then we want to distribute the, the vaccine, the syringes, you know, uh, between 9 and 11%. We were making this more expensive for our citizens than it needed to be. We also discovered that customs procedures across our region were not fit for purpose for a pandemic. We discovered that across our region, it was taking, in some cases, six to seven weeks for PPE equipment or syringes or the storage containers in which you could carry the vaccine to cross the border. That was clearly not good enough. And on top of that, some of our members were imposing export restrictions on vital equipment that was needed across the region. These were the kinds of things that that we decided, right, APEC needs to do something. The observation I want to make is that APEC is not a free trade agreement. And I think we should be grateful APEC is not a free trade agreement. Free trade agreements take years to negotiate, as as the EU and New Zealand know very well. Um, You know, it can take quite a long time. APEC, however, has a certain agility to it. And that is, of course, because it is a voluntary organization, um, we are able to do things more quickly. Of course, members need to then implement it. What we did in our year when the trade ministers met was they said, right, we're going to deal with the charges levied at the border, which was code for tariffs. We're going to pick up the best practice guidelines that our customs officials have provided uh, to us, and we're going to implement them. And we all agree we're not going to uh, impose export restrictions, and we all agree that we're going to support the TRIPS waiver on vaccines. And that is exactly what happened. So I'm really proud of the fact that 17 APEC members reduced and eliminated tariffs on a list of medical products that all 21 of us agreed. And remember, we are the only group of intergovernmental economies that agreed a list of products that you need to combat COVID and then set about eliminating the tariffs on those. So 17 of the 21 of us did that. 16 of the 21 of us implemented in full the best practice customs guidelines. That meant that instead of it taking up to four to between four to six weeks for products to cross the border, this was happening in days. And then by the time that leaders met in November, people had set up sort of these accelerated green lanes to move PPE equipment and COVID-related products across. We'd moved from days to hours. So a very significant step in terms of combating the pandemic. And I was really proud that since the May trade ministers meeting, and this was, you know, our minister uh, reported this to the G20 and would have done the same to the World Trade Organization if it had met, no APEC member has introduced an export restriction since May, since during the New Zealand host year. So I think that's a very important thing. And I think impressively, all 21 of us agreed to the TRIPS waiver on vaccines. So, you know, concrete things that we would support in Geneva and elsewhere. In terms of the sort of preparing our economies for the recovery, we focus very much on inclusion. This was about, you know, helping SMEs. So, for example, moving to digital online procedures for all customs procedures. And I'm really pleased, again, that 20 of the 21 economies moved to fully digital procedures. That literally saves companies money. It reduces their transaction costs. At the same time, also, we knew that, you know, indigenous populations were not being included in the way it you know in terms, and they were the hardest hit by the crisis so one of our big focuses this year was you know tapping the untapped economic potential of 
indigenous populations. 271 million of them live in our region. Uh, and this was a significant area of, you know, sort of innovation, productivity, income growth. If you could get that part of your economy moving, this would be a, an important lever for your um, wider productivity and innovation. We refreshed the APEC services competitiveness uh, roadmap. Uh, we refreshed the food security roadmap, which then agreed that food security needs should be met and in practical ways, you know, that it would take less than six hours for food to cross the border uh, during the pandemic. And of course, we hope that these kinds of procedures will carry on beyond that. And on the environment too, you know, please don't forget APEC, in the, sorry, in the WTO, we launched in the Doha round a negotiation on environmental goods and services. There is still no agreement in Geneva on what is an environmental good and what is an environmental service. APEC is the only intergovernmental, again, the only intergovernmental organization that has an agreed list of environmental goods. And this year, and this was updated during New Zealand's host year, and during our host year, we also, for the first time, have agreed a list of environmental services, a very modern set of environmental services. So carbon capture storage services, for example, something we would never have thought about in 1994, uh, let alone in 2001 when the Doha round uh, was launched. So again, APEC, sort of, if you think about the purpose of APEC, it's the incubator of good ideas. And these are some of the really important ideas that were able to be done there. I said at the start, you know, one of the impacts, and I am going to stop now, I promise, Frederick. I said at the start that the 21 of us, you know, and these are economies ranging from Russia, the United States, China, Indonesia, right through to, you know, Brunei, Dar es Salaam, New Zealand, we are, we are some of the smallest economies, that the 21 of us account for 60% of global emissions. Clearly, APEC needed to take responsibility for dealing with that. And I'm really proud of the fact that um, APEC actually agreed on fossil fuel subsidies to a standstill commitment that will be implemented from next year. In other words, no new subsidies to fossil fuels. So for the first time, the 21 of us have taken a concrete, meaningful step forward in, in the battle on climate change. You know, nearly half a trillion dollars get spent on those subsidies putting a cap on those is your first step, surely, to fundamental reform. And certainly that, I think, compares nicely to other work that has been done in, in other fora, like the G20 and elsewhere, let alone COP26. I think the significance of APEC too is that it has a secretariat. So that makes it different to the G20. So it has a secretariat that carries things forward. And in that context, I think what's really important is, I mentioned the Putrajaya vision, and in our host year, we converted that Putrajaya vision into what's called the Aotearoa New Zealand Plan of Action, which is a 20-year program of work for the 21 of us that we're going to take forward. And it includes the classical APEC agenda, trade and economy, but it also includes sustainability and inclusion, digital and innovation in particular as well. So it has these major pillars of, of what we call growth in our region, and we've now charted that for the next 20 years. So we have a, a reference point. I think one of the things one always asks, where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? The Aotearoa New Zealand Plan of Action really does tell you, you know, how we are going to get to um, the objective of that integration, that connectedness amongst us across the region. Very good. Thank you very much. There's one follow-up I had, and you've partly touched upon it uh, in, in what you've said now, Vangelis, but I'm I'm thinking about, but if you, if, you, if you listen to what many Europeans have said in the past about APEC, they're going to say that, well, 
you know, this is this is not something like we have in Europe, or it's not sort of a, a WTO-based system where you have sort of a legal backbone and you have sort of more of a hard law or at least hard rules structure to it. It's much softer. Some people will would have dismissed this as being a photo opportunity for leaders. Others would say it's sort of that, well, you're deprived of one of the sort of great opportunities of doing sort of hard agreements like free trade agreements, which is that you provide a lot more predictability and certainty to businesses that want to use the agreement in order to integrate with other parts of the world. But then I listen to you and I listen to what others are saying, sort of talking also a little bit more generally about open plurilateralism, thinking perhaps that, well, you know, the world has changed in the sense that it isn't as easy anywhere in the world to do a trade agreement today. I mean, as I said, the EU and New Zealand has negotiated for a long time. And you would think this is going was going to be an easy one, given the similarity. I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think many Europeans thought that too. And then sort of we you know have a lot more difficult uh, agreements as well, uh, or at least there are situations where, where there will be much greater difficulties in trying to find sort of a convergence uh, between countries and about what, where they want to go. So would you say sort of is, is this... Um, uh, a type of structure for the 21st century, sort of, you know, knowing that political difficulties are probably not going to be resolved for the future. We need to find models that allow us to interact and integrate in ways that are pragmatic. Is APIC a model for the world? Sort of reflecting on what you say, I mean, I, I can well understand that, you know, outsiders not so familiar with the region may well be, I think to use your term, um, dismissive of, of APEC, you know, as a bit of a talk shop, you know, conversation, Photoshop, um, photo opportunity. That really misses the point. And let me make three observations on that. The first, I think, is a reference to something that Europeans should know, which, of course, is the something called the Kindleberger Trap. So Kindleberger was one of the architects of the Marshall Plan. And one of his fundamental arguments was the failure of the the powers to invest in international and regional institutions, you know, he was particularly thinking of the League of Nations at the time, the failure of people to invest in those public goods is what actually led us down this fragmentation of the international system and eventually, sadly, into a world conflict. And that Kindleberger trap is very much on, was certainly on my mind as we were thinking about hosting APEC. I do believe that it is very important indeed, uh, not just for small economies, but also for the large ones, to look at these public institutions and to invest in them by engaging in them and being serious in them and finding ways to, to bring people together. And I don't mean that in a, in a sort of a kumbaya sense, but in a practical sense. Fighting the pandemic was a really good reminder. In a, in a pandemic you actually, in a, in a global pandemic, you actually need more cooperation, not less. And so that was a real test of APEC's ability and of our collective ability to invest in avoiding the Kindleberger trap, you know, where the big guys, they sort of step outside of it. So there's sort of with your international theory element, that then drops me into the very practical thing. So what does APEC do? APEC provides the ecosystem. What APEC does is it provides a way for economies to build confidence in one another in the way in which we approach things and the way the different ways we may approach things. And that's one of the strengths of APEC. We are not all like-minded. Uh, we are far from like-minded. 
but we have to find a way to accommodate one another and work towards it, but also to ensure prosperity and sustainability for our populations, which is definitely, you know, what the plan of action looks to do and, of course, the Putrajaya vision. So let me give you a practical example of what what this ecosystem then delivers. So this ecosystem helped do some of the groundbreaking work over the last decade and a half on domestic regulation for services, which is one of the big announcements that's just happened following the WTO uh, ministerial. So domestic services regulation has its roots, uh, not in Europe, but in the work that was done in APEC over the last 15 years. There is a long period of gestation of work, uh, of guidelines, of reference points, of elements that you might use that gradually built confidence amongst the 21 of us to take that next step. I think another good example is the way in which we scheduled services and the way in which we did customs procedures in the ASEAN Australia New Zealand FTA and, of course, most famously in TPP, which eventually became CPTPP. The roots of all that work, the confidence that we built in each other's understanding of each other's system goes back to the the tedious workshops and seminars that got run you know, for 15 to 20 years that we all had to attend, that participate in. How do you think about rules of origin? How do we think about rules of origin? What kind of customs procedures do you have for agricultural products that have a short shelf life versus agricultural products that have a long shelf life? To pick a random New Zealand example, you know, for manufacturing, you know, how do we do this? How, and we shared information. And that then got turned into the hard rules, so beloved of, of the Europeans and indeed many of us across the region. But it will, could not have happened without the clearinghouse that is APEC. APEC provided, you know, the systemic guidelines, that the soft law elements that then became the building blocks for the two mega regions. So if you look in RCEP and indeed in CPTPP, the roots of all of the key elements of those two critical agreements are in APEC. APEC built the confidence in one another, the trust that we had in one another's procedures. You know, and again, to give you a very practical example in rules of origin, when we did the ASEAN Australia New Zealand FTA, we had to provide certificates of origin. Within three years, the ASEAN countries and New Zealand and Australia came together and said, actually, We've been doing this project in APEC for the last three years where we've understood exactly how it is that Australia does this and New Zealand and Malaysia and Indonesia. Let's do away with the self-certification requirements. Practical things, hard law things, they have their roots in APEC. Look, and the third point I think that is really important to emphasize is that, and I touched on it earlier, we don't all have the same worldview. That makes for a very challenging, and I can tell you as chair, a very challenging environment to grapple with. You know, we have a fundamentally different views of the world and you have to find an accommodation. But if we didn't have APEC there to force us to find ways to work together, to grapple with the risk of a splinter net, for example, to think about how are we going to think about, you know, cross-border data flows? How are we thinking about the customs procedures in a pandemic? Where, where else are we going to have those kinds of serious conversations supported by a secretariat that can drive our agenda, APEC delivers. So on all three of those, you know, the, the Kindleberger trap, the, the sort of the ecosystem, soft law that becomes the hard law. And, you know, I'd urge Europeans who've got this very long history to think long, long term as well, because APEC also takes time. And again, 
the conversion of the soft law into the hard law is a, is a real feature. And then finally, it forces us to find ways to work together. And look, as a small economy, that's got to be a, a very important value. You know, and again, you know, just to use the term value, th- there's a difference between values and interests. We need to find the sweet spot of that. And APEC is a very, very good place to try to find ways to work, at, work things through together. Indeed. We're going to get back to some of the more policy-oriented questions that you just raised on services, digital. But I wanted us to broaden the discussion a little bit more. I mean, it's often said that we live in the Pacific century now, and it's absolutely clear that the center of economic gravity in the world is moving from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And this, of course, is going to mean many things, but one of them is that you will have a natural agglomeration of trade, investment, output, and innovation in the region. I think this is roughly the experience that other parts of the world have had in the past. I mean, Europe for a long time, when there was sort of a natural stream of the world economy that moved in the European direction, simply because the agglomeration effect was so strong. And you've previously had, of course, that with also the United States. So this is going to be an advantage. It can also help to bring about economic integration, but it can also make governments a bit complacent and perhaps less interested in removing barriers to economic integration. Because after all, growth is going to be pretty good, even if you don't do the hard work of policy reforms. So where do you sort of place the role of regional economic policies in the region, given sort of this broader stream of the world economy? The Asia-Pacific is going to be, if it's not already, the beating heart of the world economy. And where do you sort of position trade policy in that development? Look, it's a a really interesting question. And I think it touches on a range of things that go beyond, I think, the the question of of trade policy. I think it touches on the question of regionalism versus, you know, internationalism. And look, that is a worry to me. I am concerned that we have two mega regionals in our part of the world. Uh, they are RCEP and they are CPTPP. And those two mega regionals, neither of which contains the EU, neither of which contains the United States. And in our part of the world, I think there is a brutal reality that the combination of APEC plus those two mega regionals, those are going to drive the way in which we think about trade policy across our region. That, that's the simple reality. And I know the EU has its own reasons for a determined bilateralism, and the United States has its own you know, perfectly valid reasons why it doesn't want to re-engage with CPTPP. But those of us who are in the region are challenged by this because trade policy and its relationship to growth and innovation and competition as drivers of um, our domestic you know, incomes employment, productivity, all of those elements are going to really need to be thought through very thoughtfully, I think, in our region. And the way in which, you know, we we are going to work on this within the APEC context and the, the plan of action is worth reading because that does lay out something of a blueprint about how we're going to try to to think about some of the big issues that that confront us, climate change, but also the digital. You know, how are we going to reconcile what are some very fundamental differences? You know, in the World Trade Organization, in the in the e-commerce negotiations, of course, there is a divide. There is a, a view from Brussels. There is a view from Washington. There is a view from Beijing. There are views from others across the region on some fundamental questions. 
the same in our region. And that, I think, is one of the big challenges that we face. Who is going to shape and inform the way in which we collectively as a region think about this? So I think that is going to be one of the profound challenges. And then, as you say, what is the role of trade policy? Uh, and there, I think we, we are touching on an existential question because in our region, we have, I mean, across the world now, we have free trade agreements proliferating. I mean, I'm not going to use the glib phrase, well, we have the spaghetti bowl or the noodle bowl. I, I think that's the least interesting thing for us to be thinking about. I think the big challenge for us is going to be, what is the purpose of these trade agreements? And are we sure that negotiating more of them is the answer? Or should we be thinking about how and whether these agreements can pick up broader issues that can sustain the social license across our economy. So we all are aware that there is tremendous pressure on the social license for trade policy, not just in Europe, not just in the United States, but in a country like New Zealand as well. These are things that we all collectively need to take seriously if trade policy is to survive. I think also we've got to think very hard, not just about the negotiations, but are we implementing these agreements effectively? Are we ensuring that businesses are taking full advantage of these agreements? And I don't mean just the big companies that, that are equipped to you know, implement these agreements, but the small and medium-sized enterprise. What are we doing to support them? These are the questions we need to be thinking about. But by the way, are we sure that women are getting the benefits of trade? Are we sure that the indigenous populations are getting the benefits of trade? I can tell you that we are about to put out a working paper in my ministry that reveals some pretty embarrassing facts, including, for example, um, the fact that, uh, yes, ethnic minorities in New Zealand, Maori, uh, the indigenous population, are beneficiaries. If they're involved in exporting firm, they, are, uh, they have higher incomes, greater productivity, and higher employment than if they are in a non-exporting firm. However, there is a gap between their experience of the in income effect, the employment effect, and the productivity effect compared with, you know, as we say at this end of the world, the Pakia, the white part of the population. And uh, in terms of the data set that we have, we can tell some interesting and rather embarrassing things about women as well, about their relative underrepresentation. Again, we can demonstrate that women earn more, are employed more, but they are, and they are more productive if they are in an exporting firm compared to a non-exporting firm. However, they are still behind their male counterparts. So we have a, we have a problem there. Now, what are we going to do about that? And how does trade policy adapt? And how do we persuade our sceptical and rightly so populations that actually trade policy is still a key driver of growth? We now need to use our creativity and our imaginations to find ways to make sure that this genuinely delivers the benefits back. So for the first time, we do have data sets with serious time series here in New Zealand, at least. And by the way, I think other partners, including in Europe, might want to look at their own data sets because I know the Commission has done some very important work. Lucien Sarnat has done some very important work here, but it's incomplete. And we need to know more so that we can have a policy response so that it can answer your question, what's the role of trade policy here? Indeed. No, that's, that's a very good point, Vangelis. And, and thinking about it a little bit more broadly, so what are the chances that you know, either APEC or other regional forum will be able to address these type of issues. And I mean, all those that you, that you mentioned sort of around social license of trade, where we have climate change and how that intersects with trade policy. But then comes perhaps the broader 
fundamental drivers of change in the economy right now with technology, with digital, with knowledge, human capital, the high premium on human, human capital, which of course is very, very strong in the entire Asia-Pacific region. Some of the questions that you referred to being at the center of, of your host year agenda was, you know, important ones on trade, customs administration for pandemic goods, etc. But do you think there's also a chance that you can sort of gradually start to position a role for trade policy or regional cooperation broadly that also has a, an ability to step into these new type of issues that we weren't dealing with, as you mentioned, sort of in back in the Uruguay round days, let alone when we started the Doha round? Yeah, look, I think those are, those are, those are really good questions, um, Frederick. I, um, I think the answer is a complicated one because, you know, if I think about the APEC experience, you know, until a year ago, it wasn't possible to talk about climate change in an APEC context in a, in, a, in a serious way. And yet this year, it is now part of the 20-year program of work. We've done something on fossil fuel subsidies. We did something on environmental goods and services. When the situation becomes urgent, as it clearly was, and of course, you know, during our host year, there was also COP26 and the embarrassing fact, but that we contribute, the, the 21 of us contribute 60% of global emissions Clearly, it's not credible for APEC to do nothing about climate change. But I also have to say that if you think about our membership, uh, you will see how challenging that is. So if you think about some of the big emitters and their relative willingness to do something, you can see the challenge that confronts the institution while at the same time needing to maintain its credibility. So, And I would argue that that's the way in which we need to think about things. Like I can still remember a time in APEC when it was forbidden to talk about the linkage between trade and environment. And you could not go there. And New Zealand was a country that kept wanting to go there. This is a discussion we need to have. Now it has become a standard part of the dialogue to talk about trade and environment and indeed to be the incubator of the good ideas, the environmental services list, by couching it in terms of what is the trade policy lever that we can pull here that can do things. And how do we share the experience of, of what it is we do? And I think that's a really important part of what APEC does. It goes back to my point about building confidence. It's sharing your experience. It's building confidence. And if I may say so, it's the APEC, it's the APEC spirit. Amongst APEC economies, there is an understanding that each year the host is able to do things that as a, as a normal member economy, you may not get the latitude to do. And that each time you are the host, that is an opportunity to try to frame up an agenda, you still have to get consensus. You still have to work very, very hard. And you can imagine how much harder it was to do that across, you know, the Teams platform, which is the one we used um, for APEC. But nevertheless, it's finding that way. And APEC forces us to find the way. Of course, there has to be a certain deftness in the drafting of how you capture these very different views. You know, you can imagine who was opposed and who really struggled with the fossil fuel subsidy commitment. You can also imagine who might have had the biggest challenge in, in terms of using phrases that would imply that you'd have to remove tariffs on vaccines or on PPE equipment. Again, you had to find a way to accommodate and you needed to use all the levers you could to try to, try to see how you would best deploy APEC. So I have always been a big fan of APEC. APEC allows each economy the opportunity to try to incubate ideas. You don't need a consensus to run a workshop or to fund a specific project. You do need a consensus, though, if you're going to do something across the 21 of us. 
And that is the beauty of APEC. You can gradually build support for something and then build that consensus that becomes so vital. But it does take a different mindset. So it is really important that you don't have a mindset that says we have to have legally binding enforceable rules from day one. Sure, that's what I was almost going to say. That's what all 21 of us would like. That would not be true. But it is something that you then say, well, in APEC, we learned the following. Let's take those lessons and let's put them into our free trade agreement, the ASEAN Australia New Zealand Free Trade Agreement, CPTPP, or indeed an RCEP. If you think about the work that was done on competition policy, where we landed in CPTPP, where we landed in, in RCEP on intellectual property, and indeed in CPTPP as well, the roots and origins of that work were over 15 years ago in, in APEC. So a very important driver of change. doesn't happen immediately, but we're good at the long game at this end of the world. Indeed you are. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, New Zealand priorities going forward. So, uh, I mean, New Zealand has been a very successful, but also very uh, active and innovative trade policy actor for quite some time. You're negotiating with the European Union. You have just concluded an FTA with um, the UK. You had a leading role in, in the TPP negotiations that later became the CPTPP. But you're also stepping into new type of agreements. You have pretty recently concluded, for instance, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. And we had a couple of months ago, Stephanie Honey, that joined us to talk about these issues, which was very, very enlightening. So my question here is, sort of, what, how do you as New Zealand look at, at these issues and what do you want to contribute with? What type of innovation are you thinking about in terms of uh, putting forward new agreements, going into this new type of issues? What do you want to achieve with the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement? Is it a, a closed agreement? Do you want to expand it to include other countries? Are there ways of trying to universalize the, the initiatives that you have taken in the past? Great questions, and um, I, I could speak for hours. Look, I mean, I, and I know I don't have hours, don't worry. So New Zealand has a strategy. It's, its strategy is essentially called concerted open plurilateralism. And the idea essentially is that we will work with they do tend to be smaller economies, like-minded economies that have ambition, but that can also move quickly. We do deliberately look to work with smaller countries in our part of the world who can move swiftly. And to give you an example of this, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement is one. It's Singapore, New Zealand, and Chile. And I mean, if you heard Stephanie Honey, you heard the masterclass of the DEPA agreement. I think the interesting innovation we had there was this modular approach. But the key thing is that it's an open plurilateral. It's an open accession agreement. It is open to any other economy, WTO member, who can meet the standard. And, you know, we, we the, the three of us deliberately designed this agreement, not because, well, we wanted it to have a practical effect for us. And we were looking around the world and we were seeing that the big economies with the big tech companies there was a real risk that these are the guys who are going to write the rules for the rest of us. Europe, United States, China, fine. But for us, those rules don't necessarily work. We don't have the big tech companies. We have small and medium enterprise who are in the technology game and the digital, very creative companies. We wanted to have some agency ourselves and to have a way of shaping and informing a set of rules that worked for us, for New Zealand, for Chile, for Singapore, not necessarily for the United States or the EU or for China, but for us. And then we would take this agreement and we would show it to others. And we would say, 
It's an open accession agreement. You are welcome to join. And of course, the obvious targets are, of course, G20 economies. So I'm very pleased that Korea uh, has announced, well, well, Korea is in the process of accession. So there's a G20 economy, a serious player in our region, a a digital powerhouse as well. Canada has publicly signaled um, that it wants to also join. And we're, of course, hopeful that it will make an accession, a formal accession request in the near future. And of course, most recently, China has, of course, made a formal uh, request to accede to the agreement as well. So a powerful indication of uh, here's an interesting agreement. And please don't forget that it was very nice of you to mention TPP. The origins of that, of course, was the P4 agreement, which was Singapore, Chile, New Zealand and, and Brunei. The four of us, you know, this agreement was worth nothing. The P4 agreement for the four of us, it was always a vehicle for the bigger economies to dock on and find a way to work together and that's how that eventually became the, the TPP and then eventually the CPTPP. So there's the digital. This was the digital area where we thought, right, here's a something cutting edge. And we are not going to sit on the sidelines and let the big guys write the rules. Let's have a crack ourselves. The other interesting innovation I would argue that we had is called the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability. This is an attempt by six of us, Fiji, Costa Rica, New Zealand, Switzerland, Norway and Iceland. And the six of us are negotiating an agreement that will eliminate tariffs on environmental goods. It will make new commitments on environmental services. It will agree a set of guidelines and principles on eco-labeling. And crucially, it will set a template for the elimination and the reform of fossil fuel subsidies. And it will use the power of a trade agreement, a legally enforceable, the Europeans will love it. You know, the hard rules, as you guys keep telling me, this will be a hard rules agreement. And it is designed not because the six of us pretend that we are going to solve the climate crisis, not at all. But what we're saying is, well, we've all been talking since 2009 when the G20 first said we want to reform fossil fuels. We've all been talking about it. No one's actually done something. So we thought, let's use a trade agreement in the way in which and the maybe the Swiss and the Norwegians wouldn't have thought of it in the same way. But we thought, well, agriculture, agricultural subsidies, We talked about them for 30, 40 years. Nothing ever happened until it became part of a trade agreement at the end of the Uruguay round. We use trade disciplines to help people make the reforms, and we hope to do the same with the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability. So ACT, Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability, and DEPA are two of our classical examples of concerted open plurilateralism. Then I want to point out that there's the hard rules, And then we also have a set of arrangements, instruments, if you like, the Global Trade and Gender Instrument, which is us, Canada, Chile. Now I'm very pleased Mexico has just has recently joined uh, Korea as well. And I'm very, very pleased indeed um, that we understand that Colombia has an interest in joining as well. That's on trade and gender. Then we also have a very interesting initiative that our foreign minister and our trade minister announced on Friday, which is the Indigenous Peoples Trade and Economic Cooperation Instrument. Again, an open plurilateral agreement open to any WTO member, but focusing on interesting and innovative issues that we are grappling with, all of us. You know, how do you include your indigenous populations in the benefits of, of trade? How do you do this in a thoughtful way that is respectful of the kind of interests and, and needs of indigenous populations? Here is a, a practical example of it. It's an open plurilateral. And then underpinning all of that is an, a, a grouping that we and that Mexico recently joined 
called the Inclusive Trade Action Group, uh, Canada, Chile, and New Zealand, now Mexico as well. The four of us very committed to, if you like, repairing the social license and trying to grapple with some of those big issues I mentioned earlier. You know, what's happening to SMEs? How come women are underrepresented? What's going on with the indigenous populations? Why are they so poorly represented and, and concentrated in particular areas? How do we make sure the income, the productivity, the employment benefits of these things all go back? But Frederick, it comes back to supporting the rules-based trading system. So all of these agreements are building blocks back to multilateralism. They are compatible with it. We very big believers in the MFN principle, of course. And these are the building blocks with which we sustain the existing and so critically important uh, rules-based system. All of these elements are part of that strategy and that open plurilateralism. You know, we keep the WTO informed. We regularly advise WTO members. We invite them to join. It's, it's a standard talking point for our ministers. Whenever they meet other ministers, have a look at ACTS, have a look at DEPA, have a look at the IPTECA, the Indigenous Arrangement, have a look at the Global Trade Agenda. You know, we... We want to be active in this space, all of us. Uh, this isn't just a New Zealand story. It's a, a number of us are very focused on trying to support the system at a time when it is under tremendous strain and stress. And overarching all of that, of course, has been how critical APEC has been to our ability to have those conversations. The Inclusive Trade Action Group was launched out of APEC. The Global Trade and Gender Arrangement was also a sort of a, an APEC-adjacent commitment, if you like. The deeper, of course, came out of a number of conversations that the three of us, the Chileans, the Singaporeans, and New Zealand, had in the margins of APEC. Hey, listen, we should do something about this. We should demonstrate that we can sustain the system. It's the bicycle. You know, keep the bicycle turning. Indeed. Thank you so much. It's been a fantastic start of, of this week to spending this time with you. Thank you also so much to all of you who have joined us, either here at Zoom or on other platforms. I hope you will take away lots of interesting and inspiring ideas for thinking about trade policy in the future. And with us, I wish you a good week. Thank you so much.